0: I hope and pray that uh, you have been encouraged by our singing together, our praying together this morning, and that it, if this is the very first time that you have walked into the circle that is Christ Church, you will feel that God is in this place. This, he is our strength. He is the reason that we come together like this, and I hope that you will be encouraged for whatever it is that you've got on your plate, on your journey ahead uh, in these days. Uh, I have not met everybody in the room or online, but I I am Dan Meyer, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my joy to come back with you today uh, to study God's word as we've been doing in these past weeks. And I wanna read, if I can, just to kick us off today, a, um, a passage from the scriptures. It's found in the letter that Paul writes to the Philippian church long ago. And I wanna just invite you to listen to this again. I'm gonna pick up a couple of verses that we had read last week, because they set an important context for what we're gonna be discussing today. So if you wanna follow along uh, in your own Bible, and I I always welcome people, if you don't have a physical copy of the scriptures, get one on your phone, uh, download one on your phone so you have it with you always. And I just invite you to listen to Philippians chapter three. Paul says, I wanna know Christ. I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on. And you got to remember now, he's writing this letter from a prison. He's in a jail cell in Rome. He's... He's in his last days. He's not sure he's getting out of of this world alive. In fact, he's pretty sure he's not going to. But he says still, he's, he's holding on. He's pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, he says, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead? Some of us ca- came into this place this morning, and what the biggest thing that you'll take away from here is that God is saying to you, I know there's all kinds of stuff in your past, in your history, in your experience, that have been so hard, but, but I don't want you to let it hamper you any longer. I want you instead to look for what I have for you ahead. I want that to be your focus. And this is what Paul is saying, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, he says. And if some, on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. If you keep turning it over to him, keep asking him for guidance, he will make things clearer for you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. I'm going to say more about that in a minute. Join together, he says, and this is the part I hope you'll really pay attention to. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. For their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship, is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And then he says in the next couple of verses, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy And crown, stand firm in the Lord, stand firm in the Lord this way, dear friends. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow. (laughs) There's a lot there, right? There is a whole lot in this amazing letter that Paul writes to the followers of Jesus who are living in, in Philippi. And we've been studying this letter together over the past several weeks. If you missed any of those messages, you can go back online at uh, the Christ Church Connect app and get them. But we've been talking about these amazing uh, words of wisdom that the Apostle Paul gives for the people of that particular day. And, and I wanna just uh, flesh out a little bit more of the context Uh, into which Paul was speaking today, for those who may not have uh, done the study in the past on this. uh, Philippi was located on the central coast, and is located on the central coast, uh, uh, right between what we would call modern-day Greece and modern-day Turkey. And it had a storied history, this particular city, that I want to help you understand a little bit better, because it will make it even clearer why this is such a relevant letter for us. The, the city of Philippi was named after a man by the name of Philip II of Macedon. He was a conqueror. He was a world-beater, in a sense. And he had liberated this particular city and the region around it from its, its vassal state nature, its slavery, in a sense. It's bondage uh, under the rule of a, of a people called the Thracians, who were some pretty hard, harsh overlords. Uh, And they had done this in about 358 BC, and in fact, they named in gratitude the city after Philip. In fact, it was the first time, as far as we know, that that a city was named after its liberator. And so they called it Philippi. It was from Philippi that Philip's 19-year-old son went forth to conquer the world. At 19 years of age, Philip's son, Alexander, whom we know as Alexander the Great, was an extraordinary general. And he spread the influence of the Macedonian Greek Empire further and further out until he finally, the scriptures, say, or actually the texts of, of tradition say, he wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. He had a lot of ambition. Alexander did. But Alexander's work spread the influence of the Macedonian Greek philosophy and spread its language all over the ancient world and that was to prove historically very significant because amongst other things it created in a sense a common thought structure a common uh, verbiage that would allow the spread of the Christian message 400 years later. God was working through Philip, through Alexander, to set a context in which the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ could go everywhere in a way that it wouldn't have been able to do had this not happened. Some of you may have visited the ruins of ancient Philippi. You can do this. I've been there myself. And if you go to that particular place, you will notice that the scene there is dominated by this 750-foot high cliff. And on the top of that cliff, once upon a time, there was a citadel, there were temples up there that looked down on the great capital city of Philippi. Philippi was known for its magnificent amphitheater, for its beautiful shopping districts, for its magnificent homes. It had these fertile fields you can see in the picture all around it, and nearby there were these gold mines that flooded the city of Philippi with cash, with resources for the development of the arts, of sports. Philippi was one amazing place. When Roman soldiers finally conquered the Macedonians in 168 BC, they then added their culture to Philippi. It became this fusion of Roman and Greek civilization and in fact, apart from the city of Rome itself, Philippi was said to be the most Roman city in the entire ancient world. I mean, if you couldn't go to Rome, go to Philippi, was the word. And you'll see what culture at its height really looks like. It was a place where many military heroes and merchants liked to retire. I'm guessing that given that description, you can probably see why, um, if you were living in Philippi, the temptation to make power and prosperity, your main thing, would be extremely high. No celebrity of that time was a greater symbol of power and prosperity than the Roman Caesar, the emperor himself. And a succession of Roman Caesars had had held themselves out as not only the greatest symbol, but the supreme source of hope for everyone else to get power and prosperity. In fact, on an annual basis, that, that status as the supreme hope was being reinforced. And every citizen of, that, of the empire would be required at some point in any city Philippi amongst them, to, to, to go past a ceremonial altar on which there burned a flame, and they would be required to take a little pinch of incense and throw it into the flame as sort of a prayer to the heavens and to proclaim these words Caesar est curios. Doesn't mean Caesar is curious, it literally means Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Everyone in the empire was expected to do this. As long as you were willing to do that, to say in effect, the government is my hope. You were given a lot of freedom, as long as you bought that central idea. For example, as long as you agreed to declare the Roman emperor Lord above all, you could define the object of your own personal spirituality or your own personal religion pretty much any way you wanted. Pretty much any way you wanted to design, and people did that. We know from a scholarly study of uh, those times that there were three major gods that people were following in those days. Uh, They were holdovers from the time when the Thracians uh, basically ran the whole operation in this part of the ancient world. Uh, some people worshiped the god Liber Pater. And Liber Pater was called by the later Greeks and Romans Bacchus or Dionysius. Some of you have heard those names before from school. He was the god of the grape harvest, therefore, the god of wine, therefore, the god of intoxication. He was the god of self anesthesia for what ails you and a lot of people followed him. Others followed a god named Thracian Rider. Strange name, but I'm just telling you that's what he was called. And he was associated with hunting and gathering, which I figure was the ancient form of shopping and video games. (laughs) Right? Hunter and gatherer. And then there was also this Thracian goddess named Bendis, who was later identified with the Greek god Artemis and the Roman god Diana. Bendis was always pictured in short skirts and boots. And she was carrying a weapon, and she was highly athletic, and it was difficult not to look at the lithe, shapely form of Bendis and not be attracted and mesmerized and want to follow it. Keep tuning into that. We also know that the Greek and Roman Cult of Apollo flourished in Philippi. Apollo was the god of youth and beauty. Apollo was a symbol of vital life and of healing, and he was arguably the most beloved of all the gods. The cult of youth and beauty was the biggest cult in in Philippi and around that part of the ancient world. And in Philippi, uh, Apollo was often associated with and worshipped alongside the Egyptian god, Isis, who was the queen of fertility and fame. And when I looked up Isis online and just went to the images section, I thought, ah, Kim Kardashian. (laughs) I mean, it was amazing how the images of the ancient world looked so similar to the images that fascinate people in our time. Now, I know we are Way too sophisticated to go in for all that stuff. Uh, Thousands of years later, we have evolved so far that we would never make our obsession these sorts of gods. But I'm just telling you, this is how it was in Philippi. It really was like this in Philippi. And based on a whole variety of stone inscriptions that archaeologists have found there, Scholars estimate that something like 40 different religions thrived in that environment. In first century Philippi, the object of life, I hope this is the summary for you, the object of life was to pursue authority and affluence like the emperor himself did. You needed to acknowledge that the government was your ultimate hope and source, and you were free to pick whatever religion that you wanted to, as long as you acknowledged that, you could could pursue the God of intoxication, sports, sex, youth, beauty, fertility, fame, maybe all of these things if you wanted in some measure. This was the setting into which the Apostle Paul walked on his second missionary journey in AD 51. Now, when Paul uh, got to Philippi, um, there was no Jewish culture to speak of there. There were hardly any Jews there. There was no synagogue he could go to to sort of strike up religious conversations, do teaching. So Paul did what followers of Jesus at their best have always done. He just built relationships with people. He just went where the people were and got to know them, asked about their stories, their hurts, their hopes, you know, he would go into the marketplace and strike up conversations with the vendors at the tables. He, he would go out to the river where people wash their, their clothes and, and get to know folks there. He would go to the arts events and the sporting events and, and, and just enter into the life of other people, valuing them, appreciating them. And in the course of the relationship that naturally organically developed, he would share his own story. He would share his own hopes. And he would share the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would share the message of, of the kind of God that we've been talking about throughout this message series, who's, who's way bigger than these godlets, these idols and deities that are being practiced and followed and pursued in so many other settings, he would describe the great God and he would tell the story of how this great, infinite God had voluntarily demoted himself, come down the escalator, the stair steps, become a servant, taken the form of a human being, become obedient even to death on a cross out of love for people. And he'd poured out his life's blood in. To provide a way for them to be forgiven of their sins and to enter into communion with God, their source, a God who was truly Lord above any earthly Caesar. And he described the humility and the beauty and the transformational power of this God. And over time, some people became attracted to knowing this God, to knowing this Christ that Paul spoke of. And a circle of people began to get purposeful about pursuing a Jesus-formed versus a culture-formed life or a world-formed life. Uh, They began to leave behind the Roman world-formed life and pursue a Jesus-formed kind of life. And what was originally called a church grew up in Philippi. And by, say, by means, when I say church, I do not mean a building. I mean a belonging. A belonging to a movement, to a community of people, which is what church really is in its deepest and most important sense. The church at Philippi was not made up of, of traditionally religious people. In fact, it was made up of what are called Gentiles, which, is the, which was Jewish-speak, for not traditional religious people. Um, There were a lot of men that played key roles in the Philippian church, but there were also a whole lot of women that played very vital roles in the Philippian church. The book of Acts tells us, for example, that the church met in the home of a woman named Lydia, who was a businesswoman. She was a vendor or marketer of of purple fabric, which was highly prized uh, amongst the affluent of that day. Uh, And she had a home large enough that the that the first Christians in Philippi could gather there, and they did, they gathered for worship and study and prayer together, and for meals and the the rest. In the text that we'll look at next week, um, we hear about uh, a woman named Euodia and another one named Syntyche, and Paul calls them out by name and refers to them as his co-workers in the work of the gospel. We know from the New Testament epistles that there were were a few major characteristics of the Philippian church. Probably the number one characteristic of the church was this was a generous people, a really generous people. And in Paul's letter, he talks a lot about their generosity towards him when he's in prison and their, their care for him while he's in prison But we also know from other parts of the New Testament that Philippian Christians were really active in doing impactful work to meet the needs of others in different parts of the region and and wider world. And through uh, what James Bryan Smith would say was this good and beautiful community, God furthered his purposes for an expanding group of people. I love going back and, and reading about the the life of the early church um, for a variety of reasons, but, but one of the reasons is, is that I just I find it inspiring. You know, I mean, they were, they were they were working with fewer resources, they 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 were they were dealing with much more kind of primal kind of challenges in life and on some level than we do today. But man the way they lived their lives was, was so beautiful. It was not culturally popular to, you know, they, nobody was being you know, forced to go to church. I mean, it was because of this good and beautiful life that God established in their midst, the people came. And within a few hundred years, it revolutionized the Roman Empire. It, it, it just did, demonstrably. And, and I, I pray that 2,000 years from now, people are going to look back and still be talking about Christ's church in those kinds of positive terms. I hope they'll be talking about what a generous people they were. Look, what an impact for good they made on individuals, communities, the world. Uh, I pray that something of the character that was formed in them is being formed in us right now. But I'm pretty sure that 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 ultimate outcome will depend a whole lot on whether we uh, can, as Paul says in our theme verse for this whole series, conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're going to take nothing from what I'm saying today or what we'll be talking about even in the rest of this series, I hope you'll take this. It takes focus and commitment to be a Christ follower. It takes real focus and commitment to, to be a Christ follower, especially today. We need to think a lot about our daily conduct, about the way we're really, con- not what comes out of our mouth, but by what we're, although that's good too, but we need to think about how we're conducting our lives on a, on a daily basis. Um, Growing in Christ-likeness, becoming Jesus-formed versus world-formed doesn't happen by accident. Um, It takes real intentionality. And that is because I think the American culture, much like the Roman culture uh, around the Philippian folks, our culture today, like they dealt with, is steadily calling us to put our hope in government and in laws for the creation of a better world. Um, every single day, and in all kinds of ways, you and I are constantly being um, encouraged to 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 worship, in a sense, to follow after, to get obsessed by, to to be serving. Uh, the gods of intoxication, shopping, sports, sex, youth, beauty, fertility, fame, maybe all of these things. Do you feel that? Do you feel the pull of these things? How powerful they are, even in our time? But the Apostle Paul says, you know, pursue a higher vision, press on. Remember your calling. All of us, then, who are mature should take such a view of things, he writes. And if at some point you think differently, that, too, God will make clear to you. Only let's live up to what we've already attained. What Paul Paul was trying to say is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'm, I'm quoting now the South Korean evangelist, Watchman Nee, the gospel of Jesus Christ begins not with do but with done. It begins with what Jesus has already done. Our identity is based on what he has already attained, is what Paul says here and in the letter to the Colossians and some other places. Uh, So if you have put your trust in Christ, you do not need to worry so much as sometimes we're being anxiously encouraged to worry about our identity or our future. We don't need to be worried about whether we're ultimately secure or significant because we're good right now in the most important way of being beloved and eternal if we've put our trust in Jesus. That's yours now. You no longer need to work on that. It's yours, it's a gift that Jesus offers to you when you open your heart and your life to him you have already attained the security and the significance that all these lesser gods are trying to peddle to you on their terms. That's really important to take in. So... Paul goes on to say, and I, and I think this is kind of counterintuitive, he says, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. What does he mean by that? Well, the cross of Christ is about a couple of really important things. Idea number one is that the cross of Christ is about the idea that we can't save ourselves. We needed a God, perfect and pure, to, to put his weight on the scales of justice and to even them out and to provide a way for us to be forgiven completely. And the world's always telling us, no, you're, you're gonna save yourself by being a, a good person, by being a knowledgeable person, by doing religious rituals and deeds. The cross of Christ is about salvation on the merit of Jesus, not on the merit of our behavior. So, so there are some living as enemies of that dimension of the cross. Uh, They're living as enemies in the sense that they keep trying to tell us, "You got to do better. You got to improve. You got to work harder. You know, you got to check off more boxes. You got to get more moral merit badges." The cross of Christ is not about that. Once you have taken in the wonder of the cross of Christ, you do good things out of gratitude, not out of earning. And it brings a much more open-handed, relaxed heart and life to everything when you've taken in the wonder of the cross of Christ. Another dimension of the cross of Christ is the cross of Christ shows us that the most staggering, world-changing power is not found in gaining more control. It's in humbling ourselves and giving things away in the service of love. Jesus was never more powerful than when he'd been stripped of every worldly power. And what he did upon that cross is a model for us of the kind of influence you and I can have every time we bend our knee to become servants in a world obsessed with control. Some people are living as enemies of the cross. You don't want to. Do you want to live by the power of the cross, you and I? Paul says their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame because their mind is set on earthly things. The effect of sin on our mind, on our perceptions, is that we keep thinking we can save ourselves. We, we can get control. We, we count on our appetites, our stomach, to tell us what is really worthy of pursuit. We sometimes estimate Glory in terms of things that are actually pretty shameful. There's a lot of stuff that's getting glorified in our society today that's shameful. It's, it's not something that really leads to human thriving and flourishing, except for people who have control. You and I have been living in Philippi for a long time, and, and it's hard not to let its culture pull at us and, and, and divide us. But we must remember, says Paul, that our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. And I want to see love controlling things, I want to see goodness controlling things, don't you? That's our hope. And he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Here's the promise that Paul is making to us. There's gonna come a day when you find yourself fully and finally in the presence of Jesus and you will be transformed by it. It'll be like little, those little filings we used to play with as children in, in science class in elementary school and we put a big magnet alongside them, and all of a sudden the little filings line up with the magnet, right? We're going to encounter the ultimate supermagnet, and our character is going to be totally realigned. Our bodies totally transformed by his presence. The Bible's uh, theological word for this is glorification. We will be glorified in that sense of being made like him. In the meantime, however, we're on a journey that the theological word for is sanctification. We are being gradually transformed, gradually aligned in the direction of the ultimate one towards whom we're moving. But that doesn't just happen, as I've been saying. That takes a certain amount of intentionality. Um, And that is why Paul goes on and says here, join together in following my example. Join together, and it helps to do this together, because we can get lonely trying to do this by ourselves. We can kind of get lost. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. I'm going to bring this message to a close in just a moment, but before I do, let me just make one observation and and two questions. Three, just like Sue Ann told me, three. One observation and two questions. First, the observation. I think we need better examples today. I think we need better examples than the ones that we're following, than, that we're being told all the time to follow in our world. Uh, I think, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm one of those guys that, through accident of god 's grace in my genes, I wake up hopeful every day. I am not a cynic, uh, but I will say that observing the world i think we 're in trouble today i think I think the troubles that we 've got right now are more complicated and and more sobering than than any other point in my life, and maybe in your life uh, I, I think that I think that if we 're going to to move in a positive or better or more hopeful direction, then, then we need to be following people who are living a life that's worthy of the calling, of the future that we're heading towards. And, and I'm gonna reflect a little bit more on that during my message on July the 3rd, and um, I hope you'll be here for that. I hope you'll invite others to come and be that, here for that because I think we are living in Philippi today. I really think we are living in that kind of a context. We are in the midst of a powerful empire. A powerful empire that wants us to acknowledge it as the supreme thing, as the supreme Lord. It's inviting us to put our faith and our hope in penultimate, less than ultimate things. With God's help, we can be enormously creative influence within this empire, that is our calling. But we need to be honest about what has gone wrong and pursue some different pathways. And I'm gonna think about that on July 3rd, and I hope you can be here for that. Let me just pose the two questions I promised. First question, who are you following as an example? Who are you following as your example? At our earlier service today, we we honored a 95-year-old pastor of our church who just retired. Uh, 70 years as a pastor. He's one of my examples. I think of um, Mama Maggie Gobron, who is uh, the Mother Teresa of Cairo, and a longtime friend of this congregation. I've seen Maggie in action, uh, caring for the poor in the, in the trash heaps of Cairo. Her humility, her prayerfulness, her love, uh, just are luminous to me, and I'm attracted to go and to try and be more like John Perkins, another one of my heroes African American, pastor, prophet, leader, uh, man of trust, incredibly generous heart, and a vision for the world as God wants it to be. He's one of my examples. When I was in my early 20s, uh, God gave me a, a sort of a, a picture of a, of a of a pastor that became a model for me. Uh, his name was Lloyd John Ogilvy. Uh, Ogilvie was the um, pastor of the Hollywood Presbyterian Church in LA. Uh, I was living out in California at the time. Uh, Ogilvy was uh, also the um, preaching uh, face and voice of a ministry called Let God Love You, which was as big as, as Osteen or as, um, at, uh, Robert Shuler, Hour of Power was in its day. Um, and he was just a tremendously um, beloved uh, spiritual guide to people all across America. He became the chaplain of the United States Senate. Uh, he was a guest in our pulpit here at Christ Church at one, one time. But early on, I went to, to, to visit Hollywood Presbyterian Church. And I got in line with everybody after the service because I just wanted to meet this guy and I was like 15 people back in the line, and the line wasn't moving, and then it did not move, and it was like going incredible, and I began to get irritated, frustrated. Why is the line not moving? Who's slowing this thing up? (laughs) And I look, and I start really paying attention. I look way down the line, and I realized, Lloyd John Ogilvy is slowing this up. He's the problem. Why? Because every person that gets presented in front of him becomes his total focus. I mean, I watched him for like 30 minutes. He never once looked over the shoulder of the person to somebody else. He never once passed people you know, quickly by him. He didn't say, oh, I'll pray for you about that. He prayed for people about that right there. And, and there was just this incandescent present Love about the way this man cared for people that 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 like I felt washed by 15 people down the the line. I felt I felt vicariously loved by the by the way he loved these individuals. And I thought this is what people felt in the presence of Jesus. This is why ordinary common people followed him in droves. He was not like their religious leaders. He loved so generously. And I said to myself, Dan, you gotta study this guy. You gotta parse everything he does. You gotta try and follow that example if you want a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And very imperfectly and haltingly and stumblingly, that's been a a path I've walked. My question to you is, who's it for you? Who are the people that stand someplace between you and Jesus, (laughs) that are modeling the way of Jesus, that you're parsing their behavior? You're really paying attention to how they do the little things that reflect the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, who are those people for you? If you don't have a person like that, ask God to show you somebody like that and, and break it down how they're living their life and strive to imitate them. Do you know the word disciple literally means imitator? We th- it means learner too, but not learner in the head sense, in the practical sense. We're meant to have these models that we imitate in our daily lives. Final question. How are you setting an example for other people to follow? How are you doing that? If there was a camera mounted drone that followed you around, wherever you went, and there might be, be careful. (laughs) You know, what would the drone pick up? What would it pick up about how you treat difficult people? What would it notice about how you handled conflict? what would be the record in terms of what it recorded on how you spent your time and your talent and your treasure what would the camera eye see about how you were using your voice or your power or how you were treating your family members when when guests weren't around or your coworkers or your neighbors or the person waiting on you or somebody else that isn't in the high status role of our society What would the camera pick up about you? What would it notice about how you faced suffering? How you handled losses? To what extent you were formed by Jesus? Newsflash. The camera's already there. The camera's already there. It's called the eyes of your children. It's, it's, It's called the... the the point of view of the others in your family, your spouse, your neighbors, your co-workers. You're being watched all the time by people who probably, even though they might have words for this, wonder if there is somebody that enfleshes the love and life of God that they can follow So conduct yourselves thoughtfully as you go from this place today. I'm going to try and re-up my game in that respect too. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you. For the people who have been our examples, thank you for Paul, thank you for the list of people who you've made luminous in my eyesight, or in the eyesight of others of us in this circle. And help us, Lord, to be so faithful in our imitation of these Jesus-formed people that Maybe one day others will be looking to us as an example. I mean, a good example of what it means to be formed and to be following you. For this we pray in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.